The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Yo, 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 and welcome back to Creeps and Crimes podcast. I'm Taylor. And I'm Morgan. I don't know why I went happy Thursday. Fast speed with that. Yeah. Apologies. And a high speed chase. A high speed. Here. I'm like, hi, welcome back to Creeps and Crimes podcast. My name's Taylor and I'm an auctioneer. And we're getting drunk. Yeah, we're getting drunk today. <laughs> What's going on? We have something fun planned after this. We and do. We definitely cannot be fucking doing it sober. So no. I actually am the one to suggest this. Yeah. She said, do you want to have a cocktail? Wait, and I said, sure. Do I? Want oh, wait, to have a I said, do you want to have a cocktail? <laughs> and he said, I'm never going to say no to that. Yeah. So tell them the recipe here. <laughs> We're drinking straight rosemary oil. We really <laughs> I, in apple slices. I found this from <laughs> Jen. I think it's called like a, the Southern something vlog. I mean, uh, blog. No, we're holding it the entire intro. Put it back in your hand. Oh, my hand's freezing. Well, then go down the stem. There we go. So we found this on TikTok from this girl's blog. And it was like, not Southern living, but it was something like that. Either way, I need to like link this stuff in there because my girls got so many good cocktail recipes mm. for every single thing that you could think about, like in detail. Anyways, this one, I can't remember the name of it, but it, it's one ounce gin. No, two ounces of gin, one ounce of lemon juice, one cut up Honeycrisp apple. I don't know what type of apple we use, but it was great. And then you put honey, rosemary, simple syrup, one ounce. And then what <laughs> and was she the put other four thing? ounces of rosemary. <laughs> I, guys, so I have like all my essential oils. But you guys remember when I was a young living queen? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. So I have like all these like cooking oils. And by the way, like I, I'm not making fun of young living or anything like that. Like I love Live. oils. She lives. I just have oil. so many now that like I had to literally cancel my membership because I was like, I need to fucking use these. I need to chill out. And just chill the hell out. Like, yeah. I have like 32 backup lavenders because before I closed my account, I like used all of the points that I had and I got like all of my essentials. So like my tranquil, my tranquilizer. You got your tranquilizer. <laughs> it's the one that you put at the bottom of your, <laughs> your bottom of your feet when you're going to bed. Either way, I like got all of those. You know what we should become? What? Magnesium girlies. I want the magnesium spray that you put on your Let's feet do it. before going to bed. Let's do it. I literally looked it up last night. I'll order us both some right now. And we'll, t- we'll test it out. Girlies. We'll let you guys know. Yeah, we, we need it's to do it. It's all over my TikTok. It's everywhere. And and so you know is what? So this like body deodorant. No. It's not I know a what body you're talking deodorant. About. It's a pill. The spray? No, oh, I'm it's talking a about- pill. It's like a de- anti-perspirant pill that you take. I'm like, you can't tell me that's going to work on my sweaty I'm not going to take a pill. Sorry. Yeah. But no, there's people that are like hormonally and like anxiety induced, like really bad sweating, you know, and they have to get like surgery on their glands. Like my cousin had to have that done. Like it's crazy. Anyways, this girl on there, she's like, I started using magnesium body spray on my underarms on my like places where I sweat a lot. Mm -hmm. And she like had to detox them first. You have to like do an aluminum detox so you can get a Aztec clay mask and put on your underarms and any other place that you want to put deodorant. I've done it. I do it once a month. I would love to test for metals in my body. Uh, Well, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to come back the Iron Man. The literal fucking Iron Man. Well, I know from like a naturopathic doctor, Mm -hmm. like just through like those kind of tests that I have metals in my body from my father working in a mill Mm -hmm. his entire life and then it being carried on to me through genetics when I was born. (laughs) I was about to be like, through sperm, yes. Through sperm. Through sperm. <laughs> Ew. 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 <laughs> and sorry, can't be right right now. But anyway, what's really interesting is that anytime we see a 
bariatric patient that's about to go for weight loss surgery, Mm -hmm. they are always testing their metals in their body, copper, zinc, selenium. Mm. Those are like the three big metals. It's every on every single test. So and then they monitor that after the surgery, too. So they come back like every six or eight months or something for those three metal tests. And I would love to see the metals in my body. You should get a metal test. Well, it gets sent to Mayo Clinic. So Okay, Mayo Clinic, hi. You can use this for research. What the fuck do you want? Does Mayo Clinic offer brands and sponsorship? (laughs) Does the Mayo Clinic? Let Fruits and Crimes know because we have blood work that we want done. Dude, let me tell you something. If we got sponsored by the Mayo Clinic, (laughs) I would be, I mean, I would be more happy about that than even how excited we were when we got the brawn. Blood pressure monitor. Exactly, three blood pressure monitor. (laughs) I mean, guys, we were thrilled when we got that. I check, it's sitting at my desk and I check it every day, every single day. Dude, I got my- This is not an ad, by the way. Yeah, this is not an ad. They're not even in this episode. They didn't sponsor (laughs) this episode today, but we're going to talk about them either way because today I went to the doctor and at the doctor, she takes my blood pressure. Did I send that screenshot to you? Did you see how low it was? It was okay. It was like 104 over 94. It was okay. I'm like, so am I breathing? You're good. Okay, good God. No, <laughs> over 64, not 94, right? I think you were 64 today. Yeah, I think your it was last 64. one was in the 90s. My last one was 94. It was like 140 over 90s. Last anyway, one. she was like, wow, you're really relaxed this morning. I'm like, you're like, relaxed? I ain't never heard that. I'm like, first life. off, I went to the wrong doctor's office. 104 over 64. Yeah. And I was like, is that okay? And she's like, that's great blood pressure. Yeah, you'd be in the green zone on your exact fit. Thank three. God. I told her, I was like, well, you don't have the green, the red, orange. and." Can you guys actually put zones on your screen yeah, for me? Yeah, do you mind? You know, with the you American should, Heart Association should, guidelines? You should partner with Bron. That's what I'm saying. I was telling her, I was telling my girl Michaela about it. I'm sitting there being like, friend, listen to this. This is shit. Anyways, guys, I guess we'll get into the fucking case. I know. I hope you guys love your merch. We're obsessed with oh, it. Oh, it's so fucking cute. We're if you haven't so ordered, order now. Our link is in our Instagram bio. It'll also be attached in the- It's in any bio. In the description. Yeah. It's called season four merch. Yeah. Halloween merch is on that link, right? Yeah. Season four merch is like the overall collection of it. And if anyone is asking if anything's coming in different colors later, this is our collection. This is it. Those colors are as sand. That's the ones we decided on. We didn't want to have a super large overwhelming mm-hmm. collection like we have had in the past because we just kind of noticed that those didn't do as well and we weren't right. able to actually physically get our hands on every single potential sample of merch that came out when the collections were that big. Yeah. So we are And it takes way ours. too long to print. Yeah, it takes way too long. So we are happy with what we got and that is what is out and that is what's staying out. So and order it now. Trust us that if it's a certain color the way that it is, that's the only way it looks good. Yeah. Okay, queens. Because we did. We did shop. You guys know that we would never put you in anything that was like atrocious. Yeah. So shit's cute. Just rest assured that everything is as it is for a certain reason. One more thing before we get into this. I just need you guys to hear this message and take it so effing seriously. So seriously. So serious. Is it so serious? So serious. Whatever. So serious. Just listen to this and do it. I need you right now to think about the scariest, earth shattering, terrifying. Like could be a fucking movie. Could be a fucking movie. Horror movie. Type of like The Conjuring 4. The Conjuring 10. I need that level of scary, creepy accounts written in for our Halloween special. Special, And I mean, I don't want the like, I saw a ghost shadow. I love those. Not for this. I want you to be like, a demon walked into my fucking room, punched me in the face, grew into a giant, and then went out my chimney. Took the roof off my house. Yeah. Went up the chimney. Got into Santa's sleigh (laughs) and flew away. Like that, that's the level of like absolutely earth shattering, terrifying. That's what we want. That's what I want. You vomiting. I want to be pissing, shitting, throwing up on the floor. 
Jeez, OP. Okay, that's what I want. Send your scariest. The scariest ones that you got. Okay, thank you. That's all. All right. Hit them with it. If you're driving, throw that shit on cruise control. If you got a glass, pour that shit up. And let's get creepy. Hey, Morgan. What? Will you smell my underarms? Um, right now. Only I'm- if you're wearing Lumi. <laughs> I am. That's why I need you to smell it. It smells so freaking good. I was laying in bed last night. I had my arms up because you know how you told me that you, well, you and M and Christine were talking about how y'all all sleep with your yes. hands up. Yeah. I'm trying to get myself to fall asleep. So I'm like, I'm putting my hands up. I'm laying on my and back. And all of a sudden you get a whiff of goodness. And I was like, mm. and Logan came over and like rolled on on top of me. And I was like, get off of me. I'm trying and to smell I'm, my I'm pits. getting hot. Chill out. Get off of me. And he's like, mm, you smell really good. And I'm, he's like, did you take a shower? I'm like, no, queen. No. That's just that's my Lumi. Lumi. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. And the best part about it is that you can use it anywhere. Anywhere. You can get that Any of nice, gorgeous that you smell in that body. Wherever you want it. Because it was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how normal BO was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. It's clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to how long? 72 hours. Not your regular eight hours. No. 12 hours. She's not like regular the deodorants. The end of the day, you stink again. No, this is 72 hours worth of wear and smelling fresh. Lumi starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like mini body wash and deodorant wipes and free ship. Bing. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code creeps and crimes at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code creeps and crimes. Lumideodorant.com and use code creeps and crimes. Okay. All right. What do you have for us? Actually, we all know what you have. Yeah. Everybody knows what I got. <laughs> I'm first today. Wow. Yeah, it's me. Everybody watch the Fuck out. Here to bum everyone down, but don't worry. We're going to pick you back up. Morgan's got it covered. So today I'm going to be doing part two of Black Dahlia. And we're going to be mainly talking about the suspects. And by mainly, I mean like the entire time we're going to be talking about the suspects and theories with each suspect. But I didn't give this disclaimer in the last episode because I was so excited about it being the first episode of season four. I don't know what I was thinking. So I'm going to give this disclaimer right now. Basically, this is one of the most infamous true crime cases in history. Therefore, there are 32 million different versions because this case is so big. Like once again, this misinformation continues to flow and do all the things. And therefore, we're getting further and further and further away from what the true case was in terms of people learning about this case for the first time. So that's all I want to say with it. Like there's nothing in this case that I'm like, this is the way that it was for sure. Yeah, like I'm 100%. I'm not going to be like that. And I really did work as hard as possible to kind of just like do an overlay of the case Mm -hmm. instead of like getting into the nitty gritty details of it. Okay. So here we go. By the end of spring in 1947, within months of her own murder, Elizabeth's case went completely cold. And lead investigator 
Captain Jack Donahue theorized that Elizabeth's murder had to have taken place in a remote building or shed on the outskirts of L.A. before being transported and posed in the location that she was discovered. You know, reading this back over, like after the fact, it really makes you think like, I wonder what testing that they did on her body to determine that it has something to do with the outskirts of L.A. That is so specific, like a lead investigator on a case. He would never just outskirts of L.A., like right on the east side of L.A., like. That is really interesting to me looking at it now. Anyways, the number one thing standing out to them being the surgical precision of Elizabeth's injuries. This took skill, practice, and so much knowledge. Right. In fact, Detective Harry Hansen said that in his opinion, quote, the killer would be a top medical man and a fine surgeon, end quote, which is why investigators got that warrant for the medical school. But this is where our favorite, God, John E. Douglas, God, FBI special agent. Yeah, we're going to. Amen. Amen. Praise, amen. Praise to be for the behavioral science profiling. Blessed unit. be the fruit. <laughs> Blessed be the fruit. fruit. <laughs> he said, quote about the killer. He was desensitized to blood, was comfortable with a knife. And although he had a medical degree, he did work with his hands rather than his brain. He also had a strong but troubled link to the immediate vicinity of the crime scene, end quote. But to completely be honest is the fact that the lead investigator even said this himself, like they were doomed from the very beginning because of this media fucking shit show of a circus that it was. Absolutely, yeah. Which no matter what they did to try and correct this, they were keeping details about this case like in this very small group of like the top investigators. They were giving correct info to try and correct the misinformation that was going around. Like they really did try the best that they could. And by the best that they could, I mean like the best that any corrupt law enforcement agency could ever do yeah in the 40s for sure nothing was working though and by 1949 there had been over 60 people that confessed to this crime and even more that said like i know my relative did it over the years they were for the money you think that or just like something because the media was saying so many different things that everyone was like that could be my cousin you could get like fame in it too and like also like there were like you said like the media is saying so much shit that it's almost like a could be for anyone right who knows sometimes like a tiktok tarot card exactly exactly since then though over 500 people have falsely confessed to murdering elizabeth short for what for why including people that weren't even fucking born Over the years, investigators and professionals have narrowed down the suspect pool to 24 people. Obviously, this is an incredibly large suspect pool, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to walk us through some of the main suspects in the Black Dahlia or Elizabeth Short murder case, starting with Mark Hansen. I decided to go with him first because we've already talked about him at length in the first part. And I want to use this section also to give you the different variations of the story versus like what I've like deemed to be the most common fact, I guess, Mm -hmm. throughout like all the sources that I looked at. So now I'm going to give you like the flip side of it. Also, while I'm looking at all this because I'm having to be a lot more lenient with what I allow in my notes, especially since these are only theories at the end of the day. You you know, he was a nightclub owner. Best friend Anne said Elizabeth had turned down his sexual advancements. Right. In the first part, I told you that he had identified the shoes in the purse. Well, that's up in the air because there are many different reports that say that, in fact, it was red 
Ed, mainly or manly, who was who the boyfriend that was married. And many people originally thought that it was Mark Hansen that identified the shoe in the purse. Other accounts say that it was actually Red that had done it, which makes a lot of sense since he had dropped her off right. and he would know what she was carrying that day. Also, in some reports, it states that Mark was actually dating Elizabeth's roommate, Anne. Oh. And that's really interesting because Anne was the one who told police that her boyfriend, Mark Hansen, had motive to kill Elizabeth because he wanted to have sex with her. And Elizabeth said no. Sounds like Anne might have been a little red flag there. Well, I didn't go into this, but there are female suspects. I'm not going to say that Anne did anything. Really quick to turn in your own boyfriend, though. Right. It's a little odd. Well, like... Unless, police, unless you were scared of your boyfriend, maybe mm-hmm. like would be the only way to do it. Because like, first off, <laughs> I don't even, I wouldn't even know what to think about that. If you came to me and you were like, Logan just tried something with me. I just want to let you know I'd kill him. Hey, you want to kill me? Yeah, I wouldn't kill you. That has nothing to do with you. <laughs> That has nothing to do I with hope you. you wouldn't kill me. So like, you know, I just don't know. I don't know how, what the motive behind telling on right. him would have been unless she was scared. Yeah, maybe it wasn't. A or maybe they were broken up at the time that the relationship, little that the murder yeah. happened or that he was getting questioned. I'm not really maybe sure. Maybe she really thought and she was like, I need to go to police because I think it was him. Right. Like, I know my boyfriend and I know. Well, yeah, this will make a little bit more sense as to why, like, she probably would have been OK with like not angry with Mark about this. We're going to get to that. So anyways, specifically what tied Mark to the case was his address book being sent back with Elizabeth's belongings in that little packet to the editor. Like we discussed in part one, it almost an hour mind kind of ruled him out because like, why would he put his name on an address book and then send it in to the editor Literally. and the police? Like that makes no sense. He's so like, for real. Let's it, would, smart. it would be implementing himself. But on the flip side of it, whoever this sick individual is that killed Elizabeth Short, like I would put nothing past that person. Right. Not even incriminating himself because that's what some serial killers do because they want the credit for it. Right. So when police asked why Elizabeth would have his address book, Mark said that it was a very simple explanation. He had gotten it as a business gift from an associate, but never used it because he had his trusty address book, which I'm assuming you're probably not tr- changing address books very frequently. And then I guess when Elizabeth had moved back to L.A., she wanted to like compile her different state contacts or something or maybe one got full and she needed she wanted to start over it's girly things right. i don't know why we do what we do but you know if it the writing doesn't vibe with me anymore from a year ago i'm i can't fucking look at it yeah look at our logos <laughs> look at the studio look at this studio like i get it if she just was tired of her old one and wanted to reprint everybody else's in a new font either way he was like i gave it to her she wanted she was about to go buy a new one i said i have this extra one it's got my name on it she was like that's fine i'll take it but like detectives weren't really as interested in that like thank you for closing that chapter but like what they really were interested in was the fact that the address book had a few pages missing from it that had been torn out Oh, so Mark claimed that he knew nothing about this because once again, he like never used it. He was like, I never even like opened the damn thing. Like she tore them out. Yeah. Like she probably tore them out. (laughs) Is someone's ever looking at my fucking planners, notebooks, to do lists? All ripped out. All ripped out. Like uh, there'll be a color that doesn't match the color on the next page. They'll be pushing me. I'll be like, I don't know. Look at the cork board. It's probably made into origami. You want to find them missing pages? One probably right there. (laughs) There's like notes on the back of all of them, scribbles and doodles. Like if I don't like it being in that notebook anymore, I'm going to rip it out. I would get questioned about that. Yeah, I would be too. Why is her planner missing pages? I'd be like, 
Because she's frantic and she needs to rip them out whenever she doesn't like her own handwriting. I don't know what to fucking tell you. I don't you. know what you guys want from me. <laughs> don't ask me anything about her Reference fucking Reference episode 159 and it'll be, she'll explain it yourself. It's all in there. I mean, go. you can go look at how she ripped out all the Marlon Barn cases. <laughs> the only case that she ever needed that she hand wrote. You know, like no one even knows what the fuck we're talking about just yet. But you'll find Not out. Not yet. And next year, I guess you'll find out. So anyways, like there's just so much, okay, like that could go into this. I really I'm like, why are you so fucking concerned about these ripped out pages? It's a woman's address book. I feel like it's so separate. But I do understand why they needed to look for it, because it would make sense that if a killer was going to send it in, that they would take any identification of them out of it. And you couldn't just rip out one singular fucking page because then the page after it's going to have the indentions of what they wrote in it. Yeah. And we do know that this is someone that would have to like have a direct motive for wanting Elizabeth dead and probably would be in her address book. So that would make sense. But like what would they possibly need out of her address book? Nothing. It's just probably was in her purse and they took it out and saw that their contact information was in it and ripped out a few pages around it. I guess. Even still, though, there is something missing when it came to Mark being a suspect. He has a motive. She turned on his sexual advancements. So humiliation. He knew Elizabeth very well. He knew her routine very well. She would trust him. But Mark was missing the medical aspect to all of this. Right. And also, like, why would a very wealthy nightclub owner kill someone himself? He wouldn't. He would have someone else do it for him. And Mark knew tons of people who had tons of connections. And many of them were medical doctors, such as Dr. Patrick S. O'Reilly, Dr. Arthur McGinnis Fott, and Dr. M.M. Schwartz, to list just a few who were also considered suspects. Did he have any, did they ever find any sort of like, this person owed him a favor, owed him money? Like, did he do anything else other than the night? Are you getting into that? Oh, yeah. Okay. I've got about three parts to Mark Hansen. Okay. Like, there's so much with yeah. him. Many people knew Mark well, and Mark knew a lot of people. And on both sides, they would owe each other favors. But he made all these connections in two ways. The socialite society, this high-end nightclub. He's very wealthy. He's hosting parties. Mm-hmm. He's got to be the party guy. And also through organized crime. Oh, there it is. Other LAPD divisions knew about Mark Hansen and had been keeping tabs on him for years. Specifically, the LA Gangster Squad investigation team. They knew that Mark Hansen had connections with very powerful Swedish gangs as he was born and raised in Denmark. Well, through this gangster squad investigation and like from the investigations, many of them through the past, there were records that suggest Mark Hansen spent a short period of time enrolled at Sweden's medical surgical school. No fucking way. Which means he possibly would have had the knowledge and know how to commit this crime on his own. Well, that changes the entire story for Hansen. For Hansen as a whole. But like, why did this fact about him potentially going to medical school stay hidden for so long? This wasn't found until the early 2000s. This wasn't released to the public until then. And why was he not looked at longer knowing that he potentially has some medical background? Well, it's because the LAPD was so fucking corrupt. Yeah. And we know that. Like, they've even admitted themselves. Like, we covered the Rampart scandal on either Patreon or on here. I can't remember where. Right. Like, we know how bad it was. And that was the peak. That was the the end of the escalation. That was where it was like, this is so fucking bad. We're going to have to fucking stop it. 
Yeah. So this was back when it was common to be being like that. Like, imagine how corrupt it was. Hanson was in this scene. Motherfucker was throwing massive Hollywood parties. He was letting all these people into his high-end ass nightclub. But specifically, he was always buddy-buddy with the chief of detectives for the LAPD and all the other LAPD higher-ups. He would bring them to his parties. He would send cars to get them, take them home. Like, crazy shit, dude. So... He has the motive. He maybe has the know-how. But do we think someone at this point in his life with this much power and this much money, would he still have actually killed Elizabeth with his own two hands? Would he have the time to do it? No, maybe. But like, in my opinion, no. I just think that he would have someone else have done it for him. Me too. Which is where our next suspect comes in. Leslie Dillon. So at the time of the murder, Leslie Dillon was a 27-year-old man, and he, along with Mark Hansen, were two of the original prime suspects in the Black Dahlia case. But Dillon was only a suspect because of Hansen, because many people believed that Dillon was hired by Hansen, along with one other person, to kill Elizabeth Short. However, it was not an easy link for police to make in 1947 because of all these moving parts. So instead, this clue came almost two years later after the murder when a man who called himself, quote, Jack Sand. Jack Sparrow. Yeah. Began calling the LAPD psychiatrist in October of 1948. <laughs> yeah, he's just calling the psychiatrist for the LAPD in uh, October of 1948 from Florida. So this dude, this Floridian man, Jack Sand, told this doctor, the psychiatrist for the LAPD, that he had been reading about the Black Dahlia case in the magazines and in the papers, and he was like really in it. And he had been studying it. So he wanted to give his personal theories as to what he believed happened. But he wasn't making just theories. Bro was straight up making claims about what happened, like not being like, you know, I think, but like, I know. In this conversation, he mentions that he had an interest in becoming a writer, but his main topic for all of his like interests and writings and all the things was sadism and sexual violent crimes. Okay, so clearly this psychiatrist is like, so you killed you. You're the killer. You wait, wait, it? who was making the, the claims? Jack Sand, this Floridian man calling. Not the psychiatrist. Not the psychiatrist. Okay. This is still a psychiatrist from Florida, though. That's... No, no, no. Jack Sand is from Florida. Psychiatrist he... is Los Angeles police psychiatrist? LAPD, yeah. Okay, but, I'm with you now. Yeah, sorry. The LAPD psychiatrist is like, Mr. Jack Sand, that's so funny that you're making all these claims because a lot of them are right. How'd you know that, friend? It's crazy. And like... So you killed her or what are, what are we getting at here? I'm a fucking psychiatrist. Right. Really? I study the book. If you're going to try and like fuck around with anyone, why would you call a psychiatrist? Right. Anyways, so Jack Sand keeps going on with this conversation. And really, the psychiatrist is like, I can't. I don't want to let this dude slip. So he like builds a relationship with him. He gains his trust. And finally, Jack Sand is like, I'm going to give you a name of a suspect that I just thought up. Never and before, I just thought of this. Yeah, this dude's name's Jeff Connors. When asked what Connors' motive would be to kill Elizabeth, Jack said that, quote, she had threatened to reveal an affair not considered proper by the average person. Bring it back to this. But little by little, the more Jack Sand spoke, the more information that he told the psychiatrist about this case that was information that had never been released and was true as fuck. He was giving details about this crime that not even the psychiatrist was aware of. 
and was having to get confirmed by the detectives. Whoa. And now I'm not exactly sure when or how police learned that Jack Sand wasn't Jack Sand's real name because it was actually Leslie Dillon. But eventually they did. And the more they learned about Leslie Dillon, the more evidence they were able to build up that suggests that he really was Elizabeth's killer. At the time that Dillon was in conversations with the psychiatrist from the LAPD, He was living in Florida, like I said. But at the time of the murder, he had been living in L.A. Hmm. And guess who he worked for? Hanson. Hanson. Mark Hanson. After months of constantly talking to the psychiatrist, Dylan finally agrees to come meet in person. I'm going to go back and forth saying psychiatrist and doctor, okay? The psychiatrist gave him three options of locations where they can meet in person. It was L.A., Las Vegas, or Phoenix. And Dylan chose Las Vegas and very clearly expressed a lot of reservations about coming to L.A. So the psychiatrist along with an undercover LAPD officer, obviously, go and meet with uh, Dylan in Las Vegas for a few days before driving back to L.A. with him in December of 1948. From there, the psychiatrist and Dylan drove up to San Francisco with the undercover officer near to try and track down the person he accused, this Jeff Connors, but they were unsuccessful. And like for the last few weeks before he met Dylan, the psychiatrist was like, I 100% do not believe that Jeff Connors is a real person. I think it's like how BTK, how Dennis Lynn Raider called himself BTK, like it was something like that. But so they were unsuccessful. And this was like even more like, okay, this dude's fake. It's really him. He killed Elizabeth Short. Because of this, they're about to come back to LA. The psychiatrist is talking to Dylan and Dylan says something. I don't. It's I couldn't find exactly what he said, but whatever the fuck Dylan said, they immediately cuffed the fucker. Something he said was like a trigger word. They immediately arrested him in San Francisco and brought him all the way back to L.A. and took him in custody and were like interrogating him. No way. Yeah. And they get a call that Jeff Connors is real, but his name isn't Jeff Connors. It was Leslie Dillon's best friend that he also worked with with Mark Hansen. His real name was like Artie Lane. So at the time of the murder, Artie Lane slash Jeff Connors lived in L.A. He and he worked on the side for Mark Hansen. But his main job was uh, a maintenance man at Columbia Studios. And this is a place that Elizabeth Short went all the time. A lot of people did. He would have known her from not only his daytime job, right, but from Hanson's club as well. However, police were never able to confirm that Dylan was 100% in LA at the time and they could not 100% tie Artie Lane slash Jeff Connors to the murder at all. Therefore, they all three were released. But don't worry, because we're still not getting off the Mark Hansen train. We've got more. I mean, because if he didn't have Dylan kill Elizabeth, which doesn't make sense in terms of like, unless he was going to have to kidnap her. I feel like Elizabeth had, sorry, there's, I'm just rambling here, but I feel like she had come across something of his like dirty laundry Yeah, at the club and it wasn't vengeful. It wasn't humiliation kill. It was like, We've got to get rid of her. We got to get rid of her. Like maybe that's her signature. Switzerland's or Sweden. Sweden's signature kill or something. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. But but all I know is that like, yes, Dylan would like two young kids, 27 and 25, I think was what already would have been at the time. Like if you needed a hit man and you had these two kids that were working for you and were doing anything to make a buck, like you could probably get them to kidnap and kill her. But. These two kids are not going to know 
how to do what was done to Elizabeth's body. Right. And he came up with a fake name like Jack Mehoff. Yeah. Like, bro, like Jack Sand. Were you drinking Jack Daniels while sitting on the beach at your house in Florida in when, you, when you called into the Those psychiatrist of the LA fucking PD? Before we move on, this is actually Morgan and I coming back on the day before this episode Hi. comes back because I realized when editing that I'm there was one thing that I missed in Leslie Dillon's portion, which is the location that you're at right now. Another reason that Leslie Dillon was considered to be a suspect is because he was a bellhop at one of the downtown LA hotels at the time that Elizabeth was murdered, in addition to working with Mark Hansen at the nightclub. But the biggest part that I left out was the fact that and why he was considered was that he was a former mortician's assistant. Therefore, he would have experience and embalming somebody. Yeah, exactly. Have the experience to do it. Now, I'm still on the stance that he's not my top by any means. But the fact that now someone that has a connection to Mark Hansen and would have probably accepted a hit on behalf of Mark Hansen. Right. Yeah. Especially I just want because that that's one of the only ones that we know so far that has embalming background. Correct? Exactly. Because the only thing that and that Han- was in the profile. Yeah. And the only thing that Hanson has was, was that like potential Sweden medical school situation. Right. So now this is someone who has documented for sure experience a mortician. Right. Like that's a big I don't know how the fuck I didn't get that from my notes to my script. I, I was like floored when I was listening back to the episode. I was like, what the fuck was I, what was going on? But I wanted to add that in. That's pretty significant. It could have been something like where he got a little obsessed with it because of his experience being around Elizabeth, being around Mark Hansen, and also as a mortician's assistant, like this is a crime that someone that has all these connections and these interests would be inclined to want to involve themselves in the case in order to kind of be a hero in it. Do I think that he did it? Possibly, but I'm going to say that he's not one of my top suspects in it. Yeah, he's not mine. What about his medical professional friends that would have the knowledge and know-how to do this? But more specifically, Dr. Patrick O'Reilly. Dr. O'Reilly was a practicing medical doctor in LA who was very close friends with Mark Hansen. Now, this is where a lot of important things that we've talked about in both Mark Hansen's side and Leslie Dillon's side. These two met at Mark's nightclub because they shared a love for sex parties. Okay. And going to sex parties together in Malibu. But why would O'Reilly kill for Hansen? Right. Well, he was a sick fuck who had a long history of sexually motivated crimes against women because of his love and obsession with sadism. In fact, he had even been convicted of assault with a deadly weapon for forcing his secretary to go to a motel where he sadistically beat her almost to death because he was horny and being held out on. Let me guess, he held his license. Yep, he was still practicing. Wow. (laughs) And... He had the connections to make it possible for him to be considered a suspect. Number one, he knew Elizabeth Short and had hung out with her several times because of being around Mark Hansen. Number two, his ex-wife, so Patrick O'Reilly's ex-wife, they had ended their marriage together years prior because they decided it was best for both of them because they had each separately came out as bisexual to each other and wanted to explore that. And that's like really cool, like back in the yeah, 40s and the 50s sure. to think about that they were like both OK with it. Yeah, that they were like, OK, let's we can end our marriage like that's fine. At least we know what we want. We should go explore this. Mm-hmm. They remained friends because they it was very like mutual from the reports that I read. But this ex-wife, guess who her daddy is? The LAPD captain. No fucking yeah. way. 
holy shit. How the tables have turned. How the tables have turned. So I'm like, and how the knots uh, have been fucking tied. O'Reilly, you might be my top. Right one now. of my tops like seriously but okay does that not make sense now as to why Anne wouldn't be offended that her boyfriend mark would have made a sexual advancement towards right. she was used to it yeah because they parties. i think they were having like open more of an open relationship right but still it's like weird that you would try to accuse your boyfriend. very wealthy boyfriend right i agree who you know has connections within the lapd yeah. So either way, there is no further evidence that would suggest that he killed Elizabeth Short on his own accord or at the direction of Mark Hansen. And this is where we are finally going to get off the Mark Hansen train and move on to talking about other suspects. Starting with sold right now, but yeah. Walter, you just hold the fuck on, man. Walter Bailey. Okay, Mr. Bailey. Mr. Bailey. There are three main things about him that point towards him possibly being the murderer. Number one, he was a highly respected Los Angeles surgeon. Number two, he lived feet away from the location that Elizabeth was discovered, which when we think back to what Johnny Douglas said, that this would have like an intimate meaning to them, this location. Right. Number three, he had a connection to Elizabeth. And this is crazy. So Bailey was 67 on January 15th, 1947. Okay. Just three months before the murder, so in October of 1946, he left his wife to be with a woman that was his new mistress. Up until then, Bailey and his wife had raised their family in this home that was only one block south of the lot where Elizabeth was found. And his wife, ex-wife, still lived there at the time of the discovery and the murder. His daughter was best friends with Elizabeth's little sister, Virginia, who she was supposed to be meeting that day at the Biltmore Hotel. Oh, my God. So much so that they were each other's maids of honor in their weddings. What? Not only that, but Bailey had an office right beside the Biltmore Hotel and was at his office the day that Elizabeth was dropped off there, January 9th, the last time that she had been seen alive. Bailey died in January of 1948, and his autopsy showed that he had been suffering from a degenerative brain disease, so dementia, Alzheimer's. And after his death, his ex-wife, Ruth, who lived in the house one block south, alleged that the reason was because, quote, his mistress knew a terrible secret about him. End quote, which was only supported by the fact that he left everything to this mistress, taking his kids and Ruth, his ex-wife, completely out of his will. Oh, my God. However, Bailey did not come up as a potential suspect until 1996 when Larry Harshneck of the L.A. Times began studying this case. Backing his theory are several behavioral and psychological pieces of evidence against Walter Bailey, such as he specialized in the surgical removal of fat, hysterectomies, and mastectomies. And I don't know if I mentioned this in part one. Don't quote me on this because, again, like I always get really nervous when talking about this case because of all the misinformation that went around because of the media. But I think that her uterus was removed from her body and the, the markings that went from her belly button down was what was used to train people on how to do hysterectomies during that time okay so number two according to his former receptionist he and his mistress would watch movies and by movies i mean film of surgeries real surgeries and autopsies while eating dinner together most nights has the mistress ever been named i couldn't find it anywhere i looked all 
over. And lastly, due to his neurological condition, he had transformed in the last year of his life from this very passive, cool, calm, very well-mannered dude to having violent outbursts and just being like, atrocious behavior wise. Oh, shit. If we were to look at the criminal profile and think about the aspects of this crime, the fact that she was posed in place where she was, etc., in reference to the location of her body, the fact that it was just a single block away from his estranged wife home. I mean, that's pretty interesting, especially when you consider that this person had the option to simply just dispose of Elizabeth's body. Like you could have dumped her remains in a remote area. They probably would have not been found for years. Mm -hmm. You you pick this specific location. Like why? Why this location? What is here at this location? Who do you want to see this body? Right. Who are you making a threat towards? Who are you giving a message to? Next, the fact that Elizabeth's cheeks were cut the way that they were are very telling in terms of what the thoughts of her killer was. This was deeply subconsciously motivated by the need to humiliate Elizabeth. And it indicates, according to Johnny Douglas, that there was some level of personal anger directed towards the victim from the killer. So what is it that Elizabeth could have possibly done or said to Walter Bailey that would warrant such a awful thing. According to Harshnick, who's the guy who found out all this in 1996 when he was writing an article about it for the Times, Elizabeth was known to lie to men, and this is backed up by many of her friends, and tell them that she had a son that died tragically at a very young age. That wasn't true, by the way. That was like not a true. a son that was their son? No, like uh, a son that she had had okay. before moving to LA, and that's why she moved to LA. She'd be like, yeah, I moved here because I lost my son. He was a baby, and I just needed to redo life, I guess. Now, this was something that was very sensitive and triggering for Bailey because he had a son that was killed at 11 years old after getting hit by a car while driving his bicycle on that street. So if he found out it was a lie. That would be his motive to want to humiliate her. Right. And put and that gives a significant tie to that location. Because I don't know this for sure, but like, what if that was the place right. that his son got hit? Right. You know, like that that's something to consider. I couldn't find anything else on it. But like also, it just so happened that his late son's birthday was on January 13th, just two days before her body was found and four days after the last time Elizabeth was seen alive at the Biltmore Hotel. Wow. All of this together builds a pretty fucking strong case against Walter. Not even case, argument. It's a really strong argument, in my opinion. I agree. However, many people believe that this theory is a reach for two main reasons. Bailey's age and his health, making it really hard to believe that he would be physically or mentally capable of killing her, doing all these things, but specifically transporting her body because it's going to be heavy and posing it the way that it was and then getting away with murder. But... Many people speculate that the reason Elizabeth's body was severed in half was to make it easier for the killer to move the body, which right. makes sense and p- position it at the scene. I mean, people can be in great health at 67 years old. Right. And a lot of people are. Right. But the main thing is, like, if he had Alzheimer's, like, would he be able to cover up the fact that he did something like that? What if he doesn't remember? You know, so he he went on living life like he 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 had no idea. He doesn't. Right. He didn't do that. Why would he? You know? Yeah. I mean, it's Walter Bailey is a 
I mean, I yeah, I feel like he's top of my list, especially because Mark Hansen has like you have to go through this this yeah this connection to make this connection, this connection to make this connection. Here are Walter Bailey's facts, yeah, and they fit the profile, right? There, there's just there's stuff that Walter Bailey has in his side of this that really makes sense for every single profiler that has ever looked at this case. And if he was suffering from Alzheimer's, who's to say that Elizabeth didn't go up there? tell him that lie, which put him in a trigger. And then he's could be possibly living back at that time where his son was still alive. Yep. Then he relives the day that he got hit by a car. And mm-hmm. he's like, you fucking bitch, you put that in my, you put that into an existence. You know what I mean? Right. Like to him, that could have been like, she was, but okay, here's either the, talking about it just the day after. Right. Or even talking about it before it even happened in his brain. Right. And you know, like specifically old men, I've had my experience with my grandfather. Like when they're older, in regular day life, they're weak. But there's like something about old people that they, when they get triggered by something, there's like this ungodly strength. Mm-hmm. That kind of, I watched my fucking grandpa with a broken femur at 80 something years old after smoking since he was nine yeet people around a hospital room because yeah. he woke up in a sed- sedation shit was weird and it just triggered him and bro had a Those broken femur strong strong. So like if it was a trigger, like that's a thing that's for real. I think it could be possible for him. But there are just like he's the most convincing in terms of like the profile for sure of yeah. it all. Like it, it's interesting. Now, this is a really good theory about him. Very good. You can see that I'm into it. I know you're into yeah. this one. But wait until you hear this next suspect. He's actually going to be technically our last specific person, but second to last that we're going to discuss. This is the man that's considered to be the number one suspect and the most well-known suspect in the case historically. Dr. George Hill Hodel Jr. Because of how large this theory is in the case, I'm going to be doing a deep dive on Dr. Hodel. So we're going to do that right now. And you need to buckle in. Okay. Because this shit gets crazy. So he was born on October 10th, 1907 in Los Angeles. From a very young age, everyone recognized that Hodel was very different. He was incredibly intelligent with an IQ of 186, a musical prodigy, and very well educated. He graduated from South Pasadena High School at the age of 15 and immediately was enrolled at the California Institute of Technology, Caltech. But after one year, he was forced to leave the school due to a sex scandal that he was involved in with his professor's wife that he got pregnant at 16 or 15. Whoa. Hodel wanted to be with the wife that he had impregnated. Very, that's my boy. And raised their child together. But the wife refused because she wanted to try to make things work with her husband, the professor husband, not a 16-year-old. I'm not defending him in any way when I say this because when I keep going, you're like, I can't believe Taylor even stood up for him. I'm like, no, trust me, I'm not. But at the end of the day, like this was a grown adult woman and this was a 15, 16-year-old boy. Right. Like that's fucked. That's rape. Yeah. You know, like she should have been arrested. The fact that she wasn't arrested is like not good. Thank God her husband left her. What the fuck? Either way, this would have been around the early 20s. And the next thing that we know about Hodel was that he continued his education at Berkeley for pre-med. In around 1928, there are records of him being in a common law marriage with a woman named Amelia. And together, the two of them had a son that they named Duncan, at which time Hodel would have been 21 years old. In June of 1932, he graduated from Berkeley and immediately enrolled in medical school at the University of California, San Francisco, where he received his medical degree in June of 1936. In the late 30s, we know that he was running a very successful medical practice, networking his way up in society, and he married another woman named Dorothy Anthony. Okay, first one, Amelia. 
we're gonna have to keep track. Second one, Dorothy Anthony. She was a fashion model mm. from San Fran. They had a daughter together that they named Tamar. And eventually he, Dorothy, Tamar, all moved back to LA in 1940, where he became a very wealthy and successful person. Therefore, he had became the head of the county's social hygiene bureau and solidified his place in the affluent L.A. society. This was how he met and became very close friends with director John Hudson and photographer Man Ray, along with all of their powerful associates. But there was something that these men all had in common that made them little besties, the little trio, and that was an obsession with the darkest side of surrealism and the dark arts. For those who don't know, surrealism is a cultural movement that was birthed in Europe during World War One, And in this movement, artists developed techniques to allow their unconscious mind to express itself and create art out of, quote, unnerving and illogical scenes, end quote. Surrealism is is true. Like it completely centers around the element of surprise or shock from afar. You're not going to think that it's like when you get up closer to it and you see the details of it that you're like, this is deep and it's dark. And it features, quote, pure psychic automatism. It's on. It's like automatic writing, but automatic drawing. OK, that's what it means. I don't I've never heard. No, that's seen... like when. No, that's like when people I think. Yeah, no, I know what like that is. Drawing. But like I've never seen it called automatism. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, I've, I've always heard automatic drawing or autom automatic, you know, whatever. Anyways, if you just Googled surrealism art pieces from like the earliest one, the first one that was ever like you would immediately recognize it. Like when I saw it, I recognize it from all my art classes in history. Yeah. And I have to look it shit. up while you're yeah, talking. Look it up. So there's like a darker side to it than what it started, but it still was dark. It still had like this message behind it. But like it just people took it deeper and that's fine because it's art. But Hodel, Hudson and Man Ray, they were all surrealist. But specifically, these three had this shared interest in surrealism and SNM, getting pleasure by either inflicting or receiving pain or humiliation in sexual activities. Basically, they enjoyed looking at dark art, partying, drinking, doing drugs, kinky sex, and most of all, womanizing together. Like that, that's what these three fucking did together all mm -hmm. the time. Which is why it probably wasn't too weird or unexpected when Dr. Hodel in the early 40s married his third wife, Dorothy Harvey. So we have Amelia, Dorothy Anthony, Dorothy Harvey. And Dorothy Harvey was actually John Huston's, his new best friend's ex-wife. Okay. <laughs> All right. And together with the new Dorothy, her and Hodel had three children together. So wait, just to be clear, he's not like having three wives. These are He's divorcing. And no, these are legal three wives. Okay. Yeah. So he's uh, currently at this point in time married to three people. He's married to three people. Okay. And he's got one, two, three, four, five kids. All right. Between three, three wives. The reason why I said <laughs> other wife is because Dorothy Anthony, Dorothy, Ho the new Dorothy Hodel and Amelia, the common law marriage and all five of their kids that they all shared together, lived together and they were practicing polygamy. Finally, he's like, look, this is a lot of fucking people in one fucking house. So we're going to need to get a house. A new one, a bigger one, new and improved, and I got the money for it. And so he buys the Soden House in 1949, which is a home that was built by the son of the famous American architect, 
Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm-hmm. His son was Lloyd Wright in 1926 and it is registered and it was registered already at the time as an L.A. historic landmark. So, you know, the shit was so expensive. Yeah. Hodel and his super large family moved in and continued growing as Hodel had multiple other lovers and children and temporary relationships outside of his three wives. Now, this is where Elizabeth Short comes into the story because witnesses and when, say witnesses, I mean, many witnesses submitted tips to police saying that Short and Hodel had been seeing each other at some point between 19, like they submitted these steps between 1947 and 1949. If it was submitted prior to 1949, it was not looked at or taken into consideration seriously until then because that year, Tamar, his daughter with Dorothy Anthony, who was now a teenager, went to police and accused Hodel, her own father, of raping and impregnating her. Oh my God. That's horrible. When this case went to trial, and it did, it was such a huge and widely publicized case because of these top-notch socialites that were involved in this crime. Right. Now, three witnesses agreed to testify against Hodel at the trial. However, at the last minute, the third recanted her entire testimony and refused to go public with her name or anything about her story. Eventually, the trial ended and Hodel was acquitted because the court found his daughter's testimony as, quote, contradictory and attention-seeking. Fuck (laughs) off. What a time to be alive then as a woman. Wow. But though it didn't work out in Tamar's favor, this trial finally made it impossible for investigators to ignore Hodel as a suspect any longer. Simply because during her testimony in court, Queen Tamar told the entire court that she believed with her entire heart that her father killed Elizabeth Short. And at least eight people came forward claiming to be a firsthand witness of a relationship that Short had with Hodel starting in 1946. So finally, police are like, okay, we got to fucking look into him officially starting in 1950. Now, even with just a glance at this dude's resume, there are so many red flags. Medical degree with 1930s techniques. Yep. An interest in dark arts and S&M. Yeah. Have connections with Elizabeth? Allegedly, yes. Smart and rich enough to actually be able to do this? Yes. But what did Hodel do after this trial with all these allegations against him? What any other innocent man would do. He sold his house and moved to Hawaii in March of 1950. Did he take his whole crew with him? I don't know, but he married his new wife named Cortanisha, and they had four children together in Hawaii. So he has nine. Yeah, he's got nine kids now. However, that did not stop the investigators from investigating because they had been watching Hodel very closely. The second that he started making his arrangements to skip town, detectives from the DA's office and the LAPD immediately were like, if we're going to move, we got to make a move now but in an incredibly under-the-radar type of way because of just how powerful Hodel was and the connections that he had. I mean that it was so hush-hush that no one even knew about this investigation into Hodel until 2003. Wow. When the file about this investigation was found locked away in the L.A. County DA's office. Wow. Wow. Now, this file that was discovered also showed that they were looking at Hodel as the primary suspect in Elizabeth Short's murder and an 18-man DA-LAPD joint task force was assembled between February 15th and March 27th in 1950. The task force electronically bugged the Soden house to keep tabs on every single thing that Hodel was doing and saying in preparation for his move to Hawaii. According to the file that was found in 2003, the wires picked up Hodel 
Goodell saying many things, but this next thing is what I'm going to tell you is like the number one thing. Quote, suppose and I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought that there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. So now he's being First off, for two. Was someone responding back to him in the right. middle of this? Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. Like, what are these individual quotes? Like, I, I don't know what these are, but I like, don't know, but why wasn't that enough for them to go in then? to immediately go and arrest him? Right. Later, more files were uncovered after the initial discovery in 2003 that also revealed something else about Hodel's past. And that was that he had been interviewed as a primary suspect in another case in June of 1949. This is called the Green Twig Murder of Louise Springer, which I'm actually going to be covering on Patreon episode 50 that comes out next Wednesday. Oh, now this case is extremely graphic and disturbing. Therefore, I'm not going to go into the details of it right here and right now but just so you know it's eerily similar to the black dahlia case to a point where it's like the fact that police say that they're not connected blows my mind however in all cases that he has ever been tied to hodel has never had enough information or evidence against him that they could hold him that police could hold him or charge him with anything so he lived his life in hawaii he got another degree this time in psychiatry. Great. That's just what he needed to do. And he counseled prisoners at the territorial prison for three years in Hawaii before moving with his new wife to her hometown in the Philippines. And according to a few records, it is also believed that he married a second woman in the Philippines and had more children. But Hotel did not return to San Francisco until 1990, where you guessed it, he got married again to a woman named June. They didn't have any kids together because they were probably both sterile. At this point. Yeah. And bros had 10 wives. Well, first off, he moved back and met her and married her in 1990. He died in 1999 at the age of 91. Wow. Bro was old as fuck. Anyways, it was at this point that his son, who when his dad died, he had worked for the LAPD as a homicide detective for 25 years and had just retired. Steve Hodel began investigating his father as a primary suspect in the Elizabeth Short murder. No way. And his son has written several books about his findings and investigations. And let me tell you something, if you are at all interested in this case at all or want to know more about Hodel, even if it's separate from the Black Dahlia case, like you need to go read these books. It was through these investigations that he's written about in all of his books that all of these files had been found or like taken into account. After a full year of re- reviewing the case, compiling everything that he could on it and using his own experiences with his father, Steve Hodel concluded that his father, Dr. George Hill Hodel Jr. was more than likely behind the murder of Elizabeth Short, as well as many other murders. Yeah, he was a serial killer. Some of which I'm going to be walking through on Patreon. Like, I'm not just doing one case. I'm going to be doing multiple cases. I'm tying everything back to George Hodel in our Patreon, but I've actually already reported on many others because Steve and a few others believe that it's possible that Dr. George Hill Hodel Jr. was the Zodiac killer. I knew you were going to say that. What? What? No, we found the Zodiac, remember? Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's Marty Bass. Anyways. (laughs) Yeah, so again, we will go through all of this on Patreon because though I love doing true crime theories, I prefer to not do them on public episodes because 
they're just so controversial and I don't want to be spreading misinformation around ever. Either way, despite the incredible amount of evidence that they have against George Hodel that was found by his own fucking son. That's crazy. Steve Hodel. It suggests that his father was the Black Dahlia Avenger. And some of these things include handwriting analysis that indicates that Dr. Hodel was most likely one of the people or the only person that wrote the letters to the editor and the LAPD about the Black Dahlia case. Two photos that Steve found in his father's belongings after his death that look just like Elizabeth Short, but they have never been able to be conclusively confirmed to be her. Number three, Dr. Hodel's receipts from the time frame of the murder in early January 1947. He paid for three bags of cement that were the exact same brand as a fresh pile of cement that was poured and found just across the lot from Elizabeth's body. And lastly, they found recorded evidence from those tapes that were destroyed that are not only incriminating for Hodel, but also have transcripts of a conversation from Hodel with another person about, quote, getting things covered up through connections with the LAPD and the DA's office because we all know that the LAPD was extremely corrupt at the time and Hodel had a ton of connections in both the DA's office and the LAPD. Damn. And those tapes that were recorded in that investigation, they were destroyed by higher ups at the LAPD. Oh, my God. Because it was incriminating against them. Fucking nuts. No charges have ever been filed against Hodel for any crimes. Now, to wrap this up, I want to leave us with something to consider when looking at all these theories that surround this case. This is the account of the last surviving original detective that worked the Black Dahlia case in January of 1947. Detective Ralph Asdell. In a 2003 interview with the LA Times, Asdell told the reporter that he fully believed that he had interviewed Elizabeth Short's killer. And you're probably like, yeah, bro, you literally interviewed over 500 people. I'm sure you fucking sat face to face with the killer at some point. But no, he's talking about a specific man. And this all started with a witness that had been at that vacant lot where Elizabeth was found just hours before she was found. Before turning in for the evening at around 9 p.m. on January 14th, 1947, a man who lived just a few houses down from that vacant lot loaded up a bag of lawn clippings into his car and went to dispose of them. Most times he would just dump the clippings at this lot. So that's where he headed first. But as he pulled up, he noticed a light colored sedan parked there with its right rear door open and the driver, a man, standing in the lot outside of the door. Thinking that this man was just doing the same that he was, dumping some shit illegally there, he just decided to go around the block and let the dude empty his lung clippings and move the fuck on. But when he came back, the dude was still there. He got really sus about the neighborhood man that was driving around. And he, in a hurry, glared at the neighbor in his car, then jumped into his car and sped off. And thinking like, wow, that was fucking weird and not wanting to get shot if he went into the lot thinking that someone was watching him. The neighbor was like, I'm going to fucking follow this guy until I can get to a dumpster and dump my lawn clippings there. Mm -hmm. He follows this weird man all the way to a local restaurant where the person like gets out of the car and goes into work putting an apron on. The neighborhood man dumps his lawn clippings in the dumpster outside this restaurant and returns home. But he never stopped by the lot again. So when Elizabeth's body was found the next morning, just a few hours later, the neighbor went straight to police and was like, let me tell you this weird interaction that I had last night. And he had the dude's car description where he worked, like everything. So he handed all this over to Asdolt, the investigator. Asdolt was able to track this mysterious sedan man down and 
interview him. But there was something off about this man's sedan when Aso met him, which is just a few days later. It had been freshly painted black. It was a light colored sedan and it had been hand painted black. They just take out a can of spray paint and just go. I guess. Work. Red fucking flag, though, bro. Yeah. Your car's registered as a light blue Ford. Right. Why is it painted black with streaks all over it and chipping paint already? Yeah. Oh, because it's not car paint? Despite this, though, he was cleared. He was never interviewed again. And they have never and say that they will never announce his name. Whoa. Yeah. Why? Asdol, in this 2003 interview, says to the interviewer, yeah, that was the guy. I know that was who killed him, but I'm never going to kill her. I'm never going to tell you his name, though. What the fuck? What yeah, the he's a fuck? big deal. Yeah, but like, why is he working at this local restaurant if he's a big deal? Like, it was an informant? Was there something more Maybe. to it? Maybe. Was it someone within the LAPD? Right. Because that tracks. Some big dog son, something. Okay, but this is where other suspects come back into this. There are reports that say that George Hodel, Mark Hansen, Patrick O'Reilly, and some people allege Walter Bailey all drove that same fucking make and model of sedan. No way. All in all, there are a million theories, suspects, and details to this case that I could walk you through. And most of us know really well from just years of this case being as infamous as it is. But this case is too big and it's laced with so many inaccurate statements and blatant lies due to how it was handled from day one by the media and by investigators. I hope that someday Elizabeth Short will get the justice that she deserves. And I hope that from this, the media learned what not to ever fucking do. But that is the case of the Black Dahlia murder or the unsolved 1947 L.A. murder of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. Wow, dude. What the fuck? So many things. So many that just like check off the box. Like, how are they not all in in a cohesive group together that did this together? It's, right. That's a lot. Are you proud of me, though? Because I, I could have gone. Oh, I know. Deeper. We, we could have had five. Episodes. Oh, we would. That's what I when I first started doing this show, I was like, this is two months of me reporting on this case. Like, there's yeah. no way I can't. I'm just going to have to cut my losses and deal with the mean comments that I'm. Yeah for fuck sure them. as fuck gonna get. So like, I'm sorry if I missed pieces in this case that you're like, you know, that's the part. That's a, there's everyone has their part in it. And my, my job's not to like. Yeah. And also sorry if you just heard this case, but it is was the most requested. Yeah. You get hounded. Yeah, about daily this about this case. And uh, honestly, like I've always wanted to cover. It. I've always wanted mm -hmm. to be able to do the research into it. If we like this, the reason this case is like, hard to cover too is because you're, you're constantly like fighting this battle of like what's real what's fake what's real what's a lie what's you know whatever mm -hmm. so anyways that's my case i'm ready for yours now okay today i had a case that is brought to you by the m shoals <laughs> i am <laughs> terrified that's right i texted them asking for their top three scariest stories that they have ever covered because you asked me oh spooky story all month long <laughs> I want you to scare, you to scare the fuck out of me I don't want to be able to sleep so I'm here to present to you the great value version of the screaming house <laughs> I can't out of the list this sounded the scariest just by name so we are going to go for it and what's really cool about this episode is that you're going to be hearing first accounts from the man who experienced all the horror himself Stephen Lachance okay Stephen dun, dun, dun. tell me everything 
So Stephen had adapted his story into a book called The Uninvited, the true story of the Union Screaming House written by Stephen Lachance. So if you're interested in that, you can go check that out. Go check it out. This is where most, if not all of our information will come from today. The Screaming House is located in Union, Missouri. Union is as historic as they come and has a ton of history beginning with European settlers, especially during the Civil War, meaning where there's history, there's fucking ghosts. So Mm -hmm. in 2001, Stephen Lachance and his three kids were abandoned by his wife and their mother out of nowhere. Oh, God. They were left living in a tiny apartment and Stephen needed to make a change in their lives. If not for his own mental health, then for his children. And to make matters worse, their lease at the apartment was about to be up. Oh, God. And if we know anything about that, it's fucking pain in the ass. Yeah, They're going to raise the damn rent. Yep, they are. Stephen searched and searched, answering every single ad in the newspaper for rentals, but always coming up short. So Stephen worked his ass off so that eventually he could move his children and himself out of their tiny apartment and into a more suitable house that would fit everyone's needs, which is exactly what he does. One day, he got a call from a lady that starts telling him about this perfect house. Yes, it's old, but it's large. It's in great shape. It's perfect for you and your kids. There was an open house that following Sunday and he had agreed to go check it out and he took his oldest daughter with him, his only daughter. He had two Mm -hmm. boys and a girl. When they got there Sunday, he and his daughter were in love with the house. And you'll see it's kind of a trend. Like it's him and his oldest daughter like throughout this entire time. Like they were like besties. Let me tell you something. There's something about an oldest daughter. Yeah. Coming from an oldest daughter, I'm the I'm the baby daughter. So. Yeah, you're the baby daughter. But the oldest daughter is like the son that you never got. Yeah. <laughs> that he did give there just too little. Yeah. But, you know, like there's just something about an oldest daughter. And she was probably old enough to be like, well, mom just abandoned the fuck out of us. So. Yeah. And she's probably also like, I need to step up. Yeah. you. Whenever you're like the oldest daughter, you've got to like serve as a mother figure, a mother figure, especially if your mother figure like steps out. Mm-hmm. But also even with the mother figure involved, like you're still like a parental right. guidance, like a nurturing guidance. Yeah. No, but she loved this one. And so, so this one, she's like, yeah. And and so did he. It was more house than they could have ever imagined. And again, he was desperate to lock this deal down for his children. The house had two floors with three bedrooms and a large family kitchen that had a mudroom that led out to the back door. And the upstairs bedrooms had a hallway or a breezeway that could be accessed from all the rooms. Hmm. So just, you know, like upstairs, stairs, hallway, bedroom, 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 bedroom. Right. The basement had an old butcher shower. So I'm pretty sure from what my search told me is that it's just like a shower in the middle of nowhere. Like it's not like a, a closed bathroom. Like yeah. It's just like a shower head with no curtain or like <laughs> just like a drain on the floor and a shower head above. Okay, got so it. So I'm assuming that's what that is and a fruit cellar. It was, again, perfect for him and his kids. It had the extra space. It was a multi-story home and they had their own backyard. It was everything that they needed for a fresh start. When he spoke to the landlady to make the deal and sign the lease, she had said something to him that probably should have been his first red flag. She said, quote, you understand the responsibility of living in an old house like this. Yeah, it's old. And he's like, oh, yeah, I understand. Like, it's beautiful. Yeah. Like, I can I can handle that. Like, what, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I'm right. going to respect your home. Absolutely. Like, I love it. It's beautiful and it's perfect for my kids. And they love it. My daughter is like, right. Yeah, Dad, let's get this. Let's get. And this. it's like, you it's think I'm not going to like, I'm going to consider living in an old home and not think about the things that come with living in an old home. Like, right. Exactly. Damage. Their second red flag should have been the landlady herself and how she showed the house. OK. It wasn't really like a real estate type of vibe Sunday open house showing. And Instead, she was kind of walking around showing it to people as if it was a 
a museum and it was like a house tour, you know, like whenever you go, for example, if you were going to tour an old house that is known to be haunted, they walk around and they tell you like, this is the living room. Although she wasn't like, this is where the windows open and swing shut forward, yeah. But like she was showing the house as if you're on a museum tour. Exactly. Yeah. Like the Ernest Hemingway house. Like it's not creepy or anything. You're just like, this is where he wrote his book and this is where. Right. Yeah. And that that's kind of her entire vibe. And according to Stephen, she was very, very strange. Within a week, she had called him and was thrilled to tell him that the house was theirs. Just come sign the papers. Okay. So he does. Stephen and his kids then pack up one day and they move to Union, Missouri in their new house. And they were ecstatic to be there. But what they didn't realize was that this house was infamous and well known by the townspeople of Union, Missouri for being extremely fucking haunted. <laughs> Fuck. Their third red flag was on move-in day. They had their moving truck parked outside. They were unloading. And again, the kids were fucking excited. Yeah. This is when a car pulled up to the side of the street. Oh, God. They rolled their windows down and somebody in the car had shouted at them. Hope you get along okay in there. And then they skirted the fuck out of there. No. Like kind of like a taunt. Like, hope, yeah. hope that goes well. Yeah, like, <laughs> oh, there you go. So he was pretty confused, but he assumed like maybe it was just some neighbors playing pranks on the new right. folks in town. Or, or it's like a Southern Maybe they were just slap. trying to be friendly at the same time. Like maybe that's what they did. It's like, like a bless your heart. Yeah, bless your, it's, it's exactly, exactly what, what it is. is. Oh, bless your heart. Hope y'all yeah. go along well in there. Yeah, like you want to fight? Right. Like, what? I can say that too. Yeah. So he didn't really think much of it. The first day in the house, things went well. Everyone was super fucking tired from the big move, but they were all, again, just happy to be there. Stephen noticed one thing that next morning that had caught his eye. On each door inside the house was an old fashioned, like a hook and eye latch, like a, mm -hmm. you know, one of those one of those guys. Yeah. They're called hook and eye latches, but it wasn't a lock on the inside of each room that was there to keep somebody out. Instead, it was a lock on the outside of the door as if it was trying to keep something in. Shut the fuck up. He assumed, though, that it was just something vintage. Yeah, you something know. Something that the old, hey, got to respect the old house. You know what that comes with, right? Locks yeah. on the outside the door. Weird yeah, okay, fucking locks. <laughs> Nothing makes sense. Right. Cool. Just vintage. That's all it is. Yeah, it's just vintage. That's going to cost you extra. That's going to be extra hundred in the rent. Yeah. It's vintage, baby. I can upcharge because it's vintage. Right. So he moved on, finished unpacking and putting things away. Next up was their living room. The living room walls were covered with, I never say this right. What's on your arm? A cherub? Cherub. Cherub with cherub wallpaper, like up across the top, which would actually be really cute in here. The way that you were like, what's on your arm? And I'm like, I don't know. What's on my arm? What's on cherub. My, That's my what cherub. Called. Yeah. So, oh, would that be so that little wallpaper cherubs? Yeah. But like the trim of the wallpaper was just like cherub, 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 cherub. Oh, cherub. we should do that. Yeah. So Stephen was hanging a couple pictures and one was a picture of two large angels on the wall, which really were just going to give some good vibes and compliment their cherub wall. Yeah, you get a whole cherub nicely. wall. Go ahead. Angel like, it up. Put your angels there. It matches yeah. perfectly. We love an aesthetic guy. We love it. When he turned to walk away, he heard a loud crash. Turned around and the picture of the angels that he had just hung up was now on the floor. No big deal. I mean, Taylor, we know a lot about this. <laughs> Bestie probably just didn't find a stud. Yeah, if no we stud. Had to take a guess, yeah. you missed it. <laughs> you missed a stud. <laughs> and Dragon, that, lead, my guy. that lead paint was throwing off your stud finder. Yeah, fuck that lead paint. Fuck that fucking Vintage, paint. Vintage, baby. Yeah. So he turns back and he rehangs the picture. It was pretty sturdy now. Starts walking away. The picture falls again and is back on the floor. Oh, I'm losing my shit. So now he's fucking pissed off. Yeah. He's, he's agitated. Yeah. So he grabs the damn thing, goes to hang it up for a third time. 
And this was the one. This it was sturdy. It was like the boys mounting the TV. That's it. It's locked in. It ain't going. That ain't going nowhere. We anchored it. That ain't going nowhere. He turns around and starts walking away when he feels a rush of air and something hit the back of his ankles. He looks down and it was the picture of the angels. Third time that it had fallen. He was fucking furious. Yeah, I'm burning the house. So he hangs the picture up for a fourth time and he literally yells, stay there, damn it. Like, like I'm fucking pissed off. Like, stay there. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and it did. Got to be assertive with those things on the walls. I'll yeah. tell you what. <laughs> That's literally me. I'm losing my shit. I've I've already shattered the picture though. <laughs> it's just the painting hanging up. No more like, glass. Floppy wall. Like all the fucking gotta, frames. Gotta kind of give it a little lift on the yeah, bottom. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go to even... Hobby Lobby and get yeah. a new frame. Fuck oh, this shit. thing. <laughs> After the second time, I probably would have been walking backwards though, like staring at it. Like I'm not taking yeah. my eyes off you. <laughs> yeah, I'm you gonna know? fucking see if it falls down. I got my eye on you. The family started noticing something off when they were all sitting out on the porch that day. Any person that was walking by on the street, as soon as as they met their property line, they would jump ship, cross the street, and walk on the other side of the road. Like it was pretty obvious that they were avoiding walking in front of that house. And actually, wasn't Stephen who picked up on this? It was his oldest daughter. Uh, I don't know why I keep saying oldest daughter. It was his daughter that was picking up on this. She's like, "Dad, why is everyone avoiding the house?" It's important that she's the oldest, right? It's very important. You're right. I'm gonna keep. Yeah, calling of course, her the she oldest. fucking did notice that. Nonetheless, though, Stephen played this off as you know maybe they're just uncomfortable with new neighbors. Maybe they're trying to give us space, privacy. They see that we're moving in. I don't know why they're doing that. The weekend had came, and that Sunday they had really big plans. The kids were gonna go to church, and when they got home, they had the entire day planned to work on their yard. They came again from that tiny apartment with only a balcony to your own front yard and a porch like that is a huge deal. Pump it up. And a lot of excitement for the kids. Yeah. Ollie would be losing his mind. Yeah. Ollie did lose his mind. (laughs) Yeah. We did witness him losing his mind. (laughs) So they planned that Sunday to mow the grass, clean up the leaves, pick up the front porch and just create a space outside that was clean and comfortable for the kids to play in. Right. What was odd about this that Stephen did make note of was that. This was in the springtime and the trees. Why were their leaves falling? That's a pretty odd behavior acting up as if it were fall. Right. Meaning that you have vegetation possibly dying on your property. You have plants that are not with this natural season change on your property. Yeah, that's a red flag, especially for it to be a historic. Exactly. You know those trees have been there forever. Yeah. And they're all like protected. Right. He thought to himself that he would let his landlord know about it and he moved on. He had asked his youngest son while they were cleaning outside to run into the house, grab the garden hose from the basement so that they could wash off some of the dirt on the walkways because it had that like uh, black, like almost like ash. You know, yeah. The walkways get that. After a couple minutes, he hears a parent's worst nightmare. No. A scream that rings from inside the house. He goes running in and he finds his baby boy standing in the kitchen, shaking in a puddle of pee. Oh, something chased me up the basement stairs. And when he asked what it was, he said, I don't know, daddy, but it was big. Yeah, I have chills. They didn't find anything in the basement. And after this, nothing happened for a few days. But the other siblings were teasing him about this a bit. Like, oh, don't let the basement monster get you, which is exactly what we did to Marshall. (laughs) Yeah, dude. God. You know that feeling running up the stairs when you were a kid? Yeah, dude, I was waiting for my fucking life out there, man. Are you kidding (laughs) me? Marshall shattered his foot. I mean, dude, do you know how many shin bruises I got from fucking slamming my the front of my leg into the stairs? Yeah. Oh, my God. Running as fast as I could, yeeting my body up that shit. I mean, it's just horrible because we did that to Marshall on purpose. And I would be praying, too, when I would be running up from my basement. I would be like, 
hallowed be thy name. I think and it's like name. as soon as you got to the bed, though, you're fine. Yeah, you're just. <sighs> but actually, from my bedroom door, when as soon as I shut the lights off, I would sprint to my bed too. Would I... you do that, or could you walk into your bedroom? Or into your bed with the lights off. <laughs> Friend, do you think I didn't have a system? I'm a scaredy cat, okay? Dude, we, I had a landline in my room. I, I was an only child at this point in time, so of course I had one in my room, but <laughs> anytime that fucking phone would ring, I would be on it. <laughs> it's three o'clock in the morning. Hi. Yes, this is her. Who is that? Oh, hey. <laughs> Let me go wake dad up. Like, what? No, I didn't. But our landline would ring all the time. Oh, my God. I loved answering it. What? Say that again? What? I can't hear you. I'm okay. gonna have to Where are we? How did we get here? I don't know. So the rest of the day went by with nothing out of the ordinary. Monday had came, and this was actually the last week of school for the kids. This is when they started noticing that every single time they would return home, all of the lights would be on in the house. Of course, first thought was that the kids were leaving the lights on. Yeah. But come Friday, before they left, it was actually Stephen and his daughter who did an entire search and checked through the entire house, making sure that all of the lights were off. Yep. But when they came back, every single light was on. The only logical explanation to this was that someone was in their house. That's yeah. all that went through his head. Someone's going so in. So he searched everywhere, but he found nothing. This was also the first day that they felt its presence. The kids were all sitting in the living room when his daughter told him, Daddy, it's cold in here. He was so confused because it was hot as fuck. Like Stephen literally had sweat pouring down him. He said he had an eyebrow sweat going across. Like he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's cold in here. That's literally But noodle. when he stepped into the living room, there was a drastic drop in the temperature. Oh, God. He said at least 30 degrees. When he stepped in there, that is when he felt the presence for the first time. He described it as, quote, it felt like an electrical current running through my body bringing tears to my eyes and bumps to my arms. It passed quickly, and I remember thinking, what the hell was that? It's a very powerful spirit. Seconds went by when they all noticed it drastically was getting warmer in there, and Stephen could also visibly see the thermostat rising because it was one of the old ones. You could fucking see the one. Yeah. Like the one in my house. <laughs> yep. That feeling was enough for him to have all of the kids sleep in his bed that night. Thank God. The following Sunday, Stephen laid eyes on this being for the first time time. Him and the kids were sitting in the living room discussing this upcoming week's plans. They were now out of school and he actually had a work trip that he had to attend to in Indianapolis that he would be gone all week. Therefore, there were some arrangements made for the kids to go stay at his mom's house, their okay. grandma's. And I couldn't put this next part into better words, so I'm going to read you Stephen's words. Okay. This is quote. The kids had their backs to the living room, for which I am still thankful because the memory of what happened next still haunts my dreams. I noticed it first out of the corner of my eye, a quick glance. Standing at that kitchen doorway leading into the family room, something was moving, not something, someone. I looked toward it again. It was a dark figure of a man, even though there was full light. He was solid in form, except there was a moving, churning, dark gray, black smoke or mist that made up his form. I looked down because I was sure I wasn't seeing this and that my eyes were just playing tricks on me. One or two good rationalizations and we could go on without our lives without incident. But a few moments passed and I was sure it would be gone when I looked up again. But he was still there and he began to move, moving into the family room and pausing in the center. His form was still a churning mass, turning blackness. 
He stood there for what seemed an eternity, but it was only a few moments before he just melted into the air and he was gone. Stephen knew that he could do one of two things here. They could run out of the house screaming like you see in any something movie. straight out of a movie, or he could try to get the kids out quietly because they hadn't seen it. Right. Their backs were turned to this. Only he saw it. And he could leave the house and try to figure out what the fuck was going on and what did he just see what he really thought he just saw. So he decided on the more calm option. He said to his kids, you know, let's just go get a soda and let's go see grandma. Let's just start our trip early. The kids, especially the youngest boy, was thrilled because early trip to grandma's. Heck yeah. Let's plus, fucking go. Plus soda before bed. Toss in a soda. I'll fucking, I'll fucking be there. Be there. Are you kidding? Dad, let's go right let's now. Let's go, Dad. Get in the car. But the older two were kind of looking at him weird because they could pick up that something was going. Yeah. on. Yeah, something was off. Like his demeanor. He was shaking. Like he wasn't. It yeah. Was a normal dad voice. Why well, would be going to grandma's now? Like we're doing that tomorrow. Like what, right. what are you talking about? You don't let us have soda before bed. Like let's be real. Right. So he grabbed his keys and he started shuffling the kids out the door. And once he was outside, he put his key into lock the door when he heard a loud, painful scream of a man come from inside the house directly behind the door he was locking. At this point, he couldn't stay calm. He said that it was so fucking loud that like dogs on the street were sort of barking. Oh, my God. Like Everyone could hear this. Even the kids could hear it. So he yelled at the kids, like, get in the car. Get the fuck in the car right yeah. now. They took off running, heading towards the car. And once they got out of the driveway, his youngest kid says to him, Daddy, the basement monster is standing in the upstairs window. The basement monster. So Stephen turns his head while driving. They just pulled out of the driveway. Okay. And sure enough, there was a dark fucking shadow standing in the window watching them leave that poor baby to think that that what chased him up like yeah he saw it first yeah that's sweet baby the next week went by with the kids at grandma's and Stephen away on his work trip in indianapolis and that entire week that he was away he spent it trying to come up with a plan on how to handle this and he also spent it on convincing himself that what happened that day didn't happen like he was trying to rationalize he's like maybe i'm just overthinking maybe yeah. i didn't see what i thought i did maybe i'm losing my mind Right. But obviously he knew that they did need to get the hell out of that house. But he had saved and saved and he put almost everything into that move. Yeah. And, and breaking leases, it's not an easy thing to do. No, it's so not. Again, his only option was to convince himself that it didn't happen. Right. Which is exactly what he did. So he picks the kids up and he returns back to the house that Friday and everything was fine. And the weekend went by normal. He decided to call the landlord and just be very blunt, asking her questions about the house. If anyone had ever had any ghost encounters at the house, is it, is it haunted? What the hell is going on here? Right. But she wasn't really quick to admit anything. And it took some prying before she said that the last female tenant claimed that her dead father came to visit her. But the landlord like she was just being crazy like yeah she did say that her dad came and saw her and he was dead but like no big deal okay that same weekend they had found some personal belongings clearly personal belongings in the shed out back so he also asked her about that and she told him that oh that's just that female tenants and she was supposed to come back before it but she never did the same one that saw her dad okay but this didn't really track because there was stuff in that shed that clearly belonged to a man and by the looks of it it was pretty important stuff and that man clearly left in a hurry leaving things behind like if it's not your stuff and this is a this is a man's belongings right and he clearly left in he a didn't rush. take any of it yeah like he didn't give a fuck he got nothing out of this phone call, though, and she was obviously being very short and hush-hush like she was hiding something. That weekend came and went, and so did the peacefulness in the house. Come that Monday, Stephen was on the phone with his mom when the kids were playing in his bedroom, which was located on the first floor. So the kids' bedrooms were upstairs. His was downstairs. The worst night of his life oh, started God. off with the inside doors rattling. 
Oh, God. He thought it was the kids just fucking around, so he yelled at them to knock it off. But it rattled again, even harder this time. He yells even more sternly at the kids, but this is the response that he got from his daughter. And you could tell that she was scared in her voice when she said, Daddy, I'm just in here reading and my brothers are asleep. As soon as his daughter spoke, the temperature dropped 30 degrees in the house. Oh, my God. And that feeling came back, that electrical charge feeling that ran through Stephen's body the first time. He could feel again someone else's energy. And with that came a gnarly stench that began filling the room. Oh, God. And it gets really intense here. So I'm going to pull an excerpt that first account from Stephen. And then this is after the stench filled the room. And then the screaming started softly at first, but started building momentum. I yelled through the phone to my mother to help that we were getting out. Then the entire house began to shake and come alive. From the above, I could hear something large coming down the stairs. Boom, boom, boom. The screaming of a man over and over. The screaming of my daughter, Daddy, what is happening? Along with this came the thought that one of my two bedroom doors connected to the stairs. Boom, boom. It was coming down those stairs and I had to get my children. The whole house was alive with noise. The floor beneath me was shaking as I approached the bedroom door. I felt something behind me and I knew I didn't want to turn around to see it. It kept coming, screaming, a new scream mixed into this man's scream, this one from a child. I made it to my bedroom door, but it wouldn't open. By this time, I too am screaming, throwing myself against the door, but it still wouldn't budge. Locked. I repeatedly threw myself against the door until it finally slammed open. My daughter was in shock at this point, and I instructed my middle son to grab his brother, run out the front door, and head for the car. Boom. Boom. Screams. Like These are like loud fucking thuds just coming down the steps. Right to his door. Shaking. My daughter wouldn't move, and I finally had to slap her to bring her to life. Oh, my God. But she was like trauma response. Yeah. Finally responding, I grabbed her, and I head for the door as I hear the other bedroom door slam open behind us. It was on our trail, and I knew I couldn't let it reach us. The whole house was still shaking and alive with noise and something big on our heels. When we reached the front door and out onto the porch, I slammed the front door behind us. As we got into the car, we could still hear the noise from the house. I drove away and I parked at the top of the street where I could still see the house and wait for my parents to arrive. We could see it through the windows, searching through the house, searching for us. It's blackness moving from room to room methodically. Oh, my God. It's a fucking dark shadow. All the lights are on. A fucking dark shadow searching through that the house. That is crazy. That was the family's last night in the house. The children never went back and Stephen never went in alone. Thank God. The little trips he did make to gather their belongings, he would always have somebody with him. And they all would witness everything he said from before. Screams, whispers, pounding from the floors above. Once he got his stuff out and he turned in the key, the landlord says to him, and I quote, some people are meant to live in an old house like that and some people aren't. I never thought you were the old house type. She's fucking sadistic. I want to fight this bitch. She's crazy. Like she put she put fucking hex on that or something. I, you can't convince me otherwise. The no, she's, she's acting. She's friendly as fuck with whatever demonic thing is in yeah. that house. This event still haunts Stephen's dreams, waking him up from his sleep. He has nightmares. This is interesting. Remember the butcher shower? Yeah. He has nightmares about a faceless man standing in that basement, washing away blood from his blood covered body. What the fuck? 
A month after they moved out, he came across an article that a friend had sent him. And in this article was a famous Civil War Captain John Thomas Crow. Looking at the picture attached to the article, it was the same man that they saw in their home. The house is currently or was, last he knows, according of as of July 2023, recently, a dog kennel. The lady owned by the same lady. She turned it into a She's dog kennel. She's still alive? This was, this was in 2001. Right. But like, I'm, I'm picturing like an old... Like witchy, lady. yeah, like a like an old hag. Yeah, that's what I'm picturing too. <laughs> you know, like yeah, she she's could be probably haunting. like 80 if I had to guess. But yeah, yeah, she turned it into a dog kennel, still owned by her. And those poor fucking dogs, dude. You those imagine the shit they see? No, could you imagine working there? No. After he left the house, something had followed him up until 2011. Oh, Ten fuck. years later, he would find his drawers open, his cabinets open. One time, he walked into the kitchen and found all of his knives lined up in a row on the floor. Shut the fuck up. In 2011, he had an open heart surgery and he died on the table mid-surgery, but was brought back. You know? Yeah. And he thinks that after that, it went away, maybe because it planned to follow him until he died. After he died on the table, you know that he never experienced anything again. Is fucking mad as fuck. Yeah. That demon was like, here we go. But also at the same time, that's him dying on that table was godsend. Yeah, it really was. Like, like that he was needed like, to die to get that thing. God was like, I can't help you. This is the only way that we just we need to hit the reset you. button. Yeah. Paranormal groups have been called in to investigate this house in the past. And apparently the home was built on the remains of a slave quarters cabin from the pre-Civil War era. Mm. Paranormal groups have been able to document dozens of EVPs and photographs of activity in the home. And they have brought in the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church issued a 156-page report on the home claiming that it was indeed manifested with a strong demonic presence. But the Screaming House is one of the most undiscovered paranormal locations in the country. No one knows about it. Oh, oh my God. That's crazy. The Vatican knows about it, but no one, like we're over here, we're talking about this hotel, this ghost here, this ghost. Look at this house, dude. How the fuck did M find this? And so also M had said that there was a, let me get these words right. There was a like a panel or something that was going on and either Steven was on the panel or the landlord was on this panel. It was like a show or like something. Maybe it was like Steven's like book tour or mm -hmm. something like that. And in the audience was the landlord and they had like kind of gone into a tiff like in the middle of the show. But also in the audience were other tenants that had lived there oh, fuck. at that house. And they were like, fuck you, bitch. He's right. You gaslit all of us. Like you knew what was going on in that house. That's crazy. And he had reached out to neighbors in that area and had asked them, like, why didn't you guys warn us? Yeah. Like, you knew what we were walking into. And they were like, honestly, we just knew that you wouldn't last that long. Wow. Like we it, everyone comes and goes like because they never, I guess, knew the like the extent of anything. Yeah. Because he was the first to go public. That's crazy. Yeah. And that someone had moved in after him. It was a female and she didn't last more than a year. Wow. I want to read this book. Yeah. Damn. The Uninvited. That's crazy. That's crazy. Where did M find this? Though? No, I got to call him. And where the fuck did you find this? <laughs> and how do you know so much? How do you know about panels and like, where do you get your shit? <laughs> Let just, me know. They're just that fucking good, dude. One Freaking day we'll be Reddit that good. Sleuth. We'll be that fucking good one day. Yeah. They're a Reddit sleuth. I just know it. Yeah, they are. Oh, shit. Anyway, that is the Screaming House. Great value version, of course. I loved it. I'm terrified. I, I want to read the book. Yeah. I believe it 100%. And Stephen, if you're listening to this, sorry, that went 
that happened to you, your kids. Yeah. You. Steven, if you're listening Sorry that the landlady gaslit you. Yeah. What the fuck? Also, call us though so we can give you an interview. Yeah. If you want an interview, come <gasps> do it on here. Steven. 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 Email Steven. us at creeksandcrimespodcast at gmail.com. We just want to ask a few questions. Yeah. I think my camera's about to die, so I'm actually going to look at this camera. Steven. Get in here. Steven. <laughs> Steven. We're talking to you. We're talking to you. You better come. We want you and we want your daughter now has to be in her 30s, 20s. So yeah, we're going to need we're going to need a firsthand experience. We right need now. to hang out and talk. We have so many things that we need to talk. We could about. do Zoom. We get whatever you want. I'm very excited. We for have this, no Steven. money to offer you, but we yeah, will. We've got nothing. But. We would love to have you on to talk about your experience and to go into more detail of what the fuck. We can give you a piece house. of Creeps and Crimes merch. <laughs> we can give you we can give you a hoodie. We can give you a hoodie. Your daughter will probably think it's cute as fuck. Well, so. I'm very excited <laughs> for this fake interview that we're going to have with Steven. I think he's going to come through. I think he might, too. You never know. All right. All right, guys. I loved it. Thanks. Thank you so much happy, for it. Happy Thursday. That's terrifying. I can't wait to read the book. Yeah. The By the way, was the monster house written about this? The, literally, Taylor, when I was typing my notes, that's all I was thinking. Yeah. About. It's the way two it boys and alive. a girl, too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. N- yeah. Hey, Steven, if you haven't gotten your money from that, you need to call and make sure you do. Yeah, because that was that was written you, about your your book. OK, yeah. Because when did this book come out? I don't know. Good question. Yeah, I'm going to have to look up that timeline, but we got to go. Everything's dying. Love you guys. <laughs> Love you. Bye. Bye. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.